Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who've made great contributions to their fields, particularly in the biological sciences. This week's guest is Paul Ehrlich, who is president of the Center for Conservation Biology and Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus at Stanford University. He's also a past president of AIBS. Let's go straight to the discussion. Dr. Ehrlich, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. When did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Well, I can't really remember when I didn't. I was very interested in nature when I was a kid. My mother was, and my father was a businessman. My mother was an intellectual who encouraged uh, all kinds of interests. And um, I was sent to a Boy Scout uh, camp uh, where there was a nature program, and I got it, uh, interested in nature. And uh, eventually, in a camp summer, I was introduced to butterfly collecting. And uh, through a friend, I uh, went to the American Museum. I was living in North Jersey. I went to the American Museum of Natural History uh, and was introduced to Charles Michener when I was 15, who was uh, then the curator of Lepidoptera. He was, he was uh, the world's greatest um, expert on bee taxonomy and the behavior of social insects, but the only job he could get getting out of Berkeley uh, was uh, to be curator of Lepidoptera. And he conned me into mounting butterflies for him by giving me for my butterfly collection uh, specimens from around the world without data. And he encouraged me to join the Lepidopterus Society, of which I suspect I'm now the oldest living charter member. And uh, that was when I was certain I wanted to go into science. It was not clear to me until I, through the Lepidopterus Society, by the way, uh, got to spend some summers in the Arctic. I was very interested in Arctic alpine butterflies. And I was also very interested in anthropology and living with the Eskimos for uh, uh, about four months one summer, working for the Canadian Defense Research Board and Department of Agriculture. Uh, I almost went into graduate school in anthropology, but I, I decided butterflies were better. And so uh, I guess that, it was meeting Michener uh, that determined me that I wanted to go professionally into science. That's interesting. What was the draw of anthropology to you? Well, I learned a non-Indo-European language, uh, part of it, and um, was able to observe uh, the way uh, the acculturation of the Inuit was going. Uh, I learned to admire uh, the Inuit and to uh, appreciate their sense of humor and tried to learn uh, as much as I could about their culture. I enjoyed, I put together, still have it, um, maybe uh, one of the first uh, dictionaries of uh, Inuktitut, the Inuit language, uh, in my field notes uh, for that summer. Uh, and so I found human behavior fascinating. I still find human behavior fascinating. Uh, I, uh, although 
we're involved in the AIBS. I think the real action in science today has to be in the social sciences, anthropology being one of them. And I have uh, tracked anthropology and written on anthropological and psychological topics a lot over my career. Uh, so I'm always interested in science. My and the big worry with the butterflies was um, whether I'd be able to make a living at it. Should I uh, go into business like my father had and uh, make enough money to live on and then have two weeks a year of vacation to work with the butterflies? Or should I risk starvation uh, but go professionally into working in evolution and taxonomy, which is what I was thinking about at the time, uh, and uh, uh, take the chance of starving. Okay, so you decided to take that chance of starvation and follow butterflies. What was it like at that time starting out a career in science? Well, it was exciting uh, from a number of points of view. First of all, uh, I was very lucky. I went to uh, my parents could afford to send me to an Ivy League school. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor either. And my father uh, was willing to, to put up the tuition, which wasn't as ghastly proportionally as it is now. And I ended up rooming uh, with several uh, uh, veterans of the Second World War. And so I got very much involved in discussions of politics and of the environment. And uh, I and several of the others read uh, books by um, uh, William Vogt and Fairfield Osborne on the environmental problem of those days. And we used to argue about it. Meanwhile, uh, I went to the uh, museum in, uh, in Philadelphia, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, where James A.G. Wren, the uh, curator of Orthoptera, and uh, Ruth Patrick, uh, who was a young, then starting up biologist, and uh, met those people. And uh, Wren let me become the volunteer curator of the butterfly collection there. And a, uh, a friend that I had met through the Lepsock through the Lepidoptera Society, Nick Gillum, who later had a great career as a um, chlamydomonas geneticist, if I recall correctly. He and I published a couple of papers in Butterfly Taxonomy. Uh, and so I had a, a sort of semi-scientific career there. This was all, of course, in the days before the NSF uh, and the, uh, uh, the big injection. I mean, it was a start of the time when a lot of money was injected into science following up on the scientific aspects of the Second World War. So uh, all of my buddies at Penn were uh, in the zoology department uh, were going to be doctors. They were pre-meds. And uh, fortunately, Rudolf Schmieder, who was the editor of the Entomological News, was a Penn faculty member who encouraged me in my uh, butterfly work. And he helped arrange through John Fogg, who was the provost, associate provost, I think, of the university, to get me to leave Penn early two springs to go to the Arctic because Tom Freeman was running the Northern Insect Survey. Uh, and I had met him at the first Lepidoptera Society meeting. 
And um, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up working in the Arctic, having wonderful adventures, or sometimes not so wonderful. And uh, uh, when time came to go to graduate school, it at the Entomological Society of America had its annual convention in Philadelphia. I think it must have been in 52, because I graduated in 53. And I tracked down Michener uh, at the meeting, and he remembered me. And I gave him reprints of a couple of my papers. And I said that although I had spent my undergraduate days drinking and chasing women, I had continued my work with butterflies and would me give me a chance uh, to go to Kansas, where he had become chair of the Ent Department, so he could work on bees, uh, and I'd show him what I could do. And uh, I also applied to Cornell, which was the big, uh, biggest Ent Department at that entomology department at that time. And Mitch accepted me, so I wrote a letter to Cornell withdrawing my name as an applicant, and they wrote me back a letter saying it's a damn good thing you withdrew your name because we wouldn't have accepted you any either. And that actually gave me great pleasure later on because Tom Eisner, who hopefully everybody in the AIBS knows, uh, was a good friend of mine and invited me to give many decades later a distinguished lecture at Cornell. And Tom had been turned down by Cornell for an undergraduate career, although he was on the faculty there for, I think, probably 40, 50 years. And we were, he was able to introduce me and say he's introduced, he, that both of us had been refused <laughs> entry in Cornell, uh, which was a nice moment. Yeah. And so what would you say is the biggest surprise of your career? Well, the biggest surprise of my career, uh, the biggest single and most important surprise of my career uh, came at Kansas when I was a graduate student and working on a, my dissertation was a, uh, a phylogenetic study of the butterflies, uh, uh, the higher classification of the butterflies, which had been largely, I had I'd gone to Michener and said, what I'd like to do for a dissertation is a revision of the satiridae, which uh, was the group of butterflies that occurred commonly in the Arctic and Alpine zones that I had collected and worked on in the Arctic and so on. And he said, why don't you, you know, the butterfly higher taxonomy is all screwed up. Why don't you do a study of the higher classification phylogeny of the butterflies? And being, of course, an egotistical kid, like I'm an egotistical adult, I thought, sure, the bigger, the better. I should mention here, by the way, it should get somewhere into the um, article that I had a huge debt to Michener and that I met him when I was 15 and we were still friends when he was, uh, I think in his last year, he was 94 and I was uh, 82, something like that. Uh, we had a, maybe the longest friendship of a uh, student and uh, faculty uh, and me mentor uh, in the history of biology or close to it. Uh, Mitch was absolutely wonderful. And he got me an assistantship at Kansas with Bob Sokol, uh, who brought statistics into biology. Uh, and um, we had a seminar, Michener, Sokol, myself, um, Jim Chilcott, who I had met in the Arctic, um, 
uh, we were discussing evolution, taxonomy, phylogeny, that sort of thing. And Bob said one day, this is all about the surprise, he said, you guys aren't studying phylogeny, you're just putting things together according to their similarities. And uh, the rest of us, uh, Mitch, me, uh, Jim Chilcott, uh, Earl Cross, uh, said, that's bullshit. We are studying the phylogenies. And, Mitch, and Sokol said, no. He says, if, if we could, if somebody just measured the characteristics of, say, 50 or 100 uh, characteristics of your organisms, uh, you could then do a, uh, a correlation coefficients and come out with what you call a phylogeny, but which is really just a dendrogram uh, showing the similarities. And we said, bullshit. And we argued about this for a couple of weeks, and then Mitch and Sokol decided they had to put it to a test. And the test was uh, that Mitch got one of his graduate students to um, put in, uh, say, a uh, hundred different butter, a uh, hundred different bees, and measure a hundred different characteristics. Either measure them linearly, or say big, small, or uh, fuzzy, not fuzzy, and so on. And gave Sokol a uh, uh, hundred lists of characteristics. And Sokol, who was the perfect controlled experiment, Bob didn't know a bee from a butterfly. Uh, he was a theoretician. And uh, he went away and did product moment correlation coefficients among the, the different uh, uh, numbers and put them in the devised the way of making a dendrogram out of it, a tree-like diagram, uh, and came back to Michener. And Michener had to agree that not only had he produced a proper phylogeny of the bees, but he had correctly placed a couple of parasitic species that Michener felt he had misplaced originally, and that was the beginning of numerical taxonomy. Uh, and I was stunned because there was something that I had thought I was absolutely right on. A test was run, and I was shown to be absolutely wrong. Uh, and that's a good experience for any scientist, I think. Uh, everybody should have an opportunity to be shown really dead wrong. I've had many subsequently, uh, but that was the first and most stunning surprise I got. Uh, my other surprises are things like um, finding out how stupid I'd been uh, when I got uh, together with a um, uh, an orthodontist, uh, and she pointed out to me, that there was some evolutionary problem in the fact that all the kids uh, around had to have braces in their mouths. And it had never uh, dawned on me that that is really evolutionarily a funny thing. Uh, and uh, and I, I, to this day, orthodontists still think that that is somehow, quote, genetic, end quote, even though that's absolutely nonsensical. Uh, so I'm often surprised at the conservatism of scientists. There's people still write papers on how to define species, even though that problem was totally solved in the 1960s. 
uh, by papers by me and Sokol and Cavallo, uh, but they keep at it. Uh, so scientists are like other people. They can be extremely conservative. So how did you go from that, you know, that early study of, of insects um, into, you know, looking at questions of, you know, human population and the carrying capacity of the globe and th those types of things? The, the transition there uh, was partly due to my assistantship with Bob Sokol. Um, that's what Mitch got me, an assistantship working on the evolution of DDT resistance in Drosophila. Uh, and uh, quickly, uh, it was wonderful from my point of view to actually uh, see selection at work in the lab. You know, in 10 generations, you can make uh, fruit flies uh, totally resistant basically to DDT. And in 10 generations of SIB selection, you can make them drop dead if you say the word DDT. Uh, and the implications of that, for example, for um, uh, antibiotic resistance and so on were crystal clear to us uh, in the early 50s. The interest in evolution was my central interest and in a way still is in terms of my and mo most of the stuff on population and so on is not in any way deep intellectually. There are deep intellectual questions uh, related to evolution, obviously. Uh, but when I uh, got the job, I, I ended up getting a job at Stanford. There's a story there, too, but it's probably too long. But uh, when I joined the department in 1959, uh, uh, the chair said to me, and it's the only instruction I've ever gotten from Stanford, uh, having been on the faculty there for something like 60 years and now being emeritus, he said, could you teach a course in entomology and, evol and one in evolution? And I said, yes. And so I started teaching an evolution course in a, on a, uh, a quarter basis, which meant there was 10 weeks of course and three lectures a week. And for the first nine weeks, I lectured on evolution where we had come from. And the last week, I lectured on where we were evolution, where we were going. And the, the, the course became very popular, and particularly the last week. And I began to get uh, requests uh, from uh, particularly through Stanford's alumni program to talk to people about the environmental situation, which was what basically where we were going. And I started doing it. And through some alumni, I was invited to talk to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And I did not know at the time that talks at the Commonwealth Club were often broadcast on a series of radio stations. And uh, so I talked at the Commonwealth Club um, the topic was uh, the food from the sea myth, the biology of a red herring. And it got a lot of attention uh, on the, uh, from the radio. And, they, and I talked a lot about the population side of the issue. And Dave Brower, and, who was at then at the Sierra Club, and Ian Ballantyne, who invented pocketbooks, uh, paperback books, came to me and said, could you uh, put down the things you're saying in that lecture in a short book, and maybe we can change uh, the results of the election, get this injected as an issue in the election, which was coming up, Lyndon Johnson running. That would have been 
60, 68. And uh, Anne and I wrote the book in an evening, a week of evenings. And that's where the population bomb came from. And uh, a celebrity of the time um, sent the book to Johnny, liked it, sent it to Johnny Carson. I got asked to do The Tonight Show. Uh, it was after we had, um, I had started with Charlie Remington, who was a lepidop who was the founder of the Lepidoptera Society at Yale and a, um, and an attorney. We had started the organization ZPG, Zero Population Growth. Uh, and Johnny let me give the address on the Tonight Show, and it led to the largest flow of mail ever into the headquarters of ZPG, which at the time had six chapters and 600 members. And by the time I'd been on the Tonight Show three times, it had 600 chapters and 60,000 members, which showed me the power of the mass media. Yeah. How have you enjoyed doing that sort of outreach over the course of your career? Love it. I mean, it, it, if, if you're a born loudmouth, when you can talk to 50,000 people at one time or 5 million instead of 50 in a class, uh, you love doing it. And uh, it has, of course, it has some downsides, uh, like the threats and so on. But the, the uh, upside is, uh, if you get that kind of notoriety and you're a field biologist, you get to go to places that you ordinarily couldn't possibly uh, go to. In other words, it led for instance, to a career in cruise lecturing, you said you'd never been on a cruise. Everybody predicted I would hate being on cruises. Actually, I loved it because uh, the uh, uh, the deal normally was if I'd give two lectures a week, they'd take Anne and me, and sometimes Anne, me, and our daughter, Lisa, uh, on a cruise. And two lectures a week for a loudmouth who teaches all the time is absolutely nothing, and yet you get to go to places which are financially out of your reach and fan often fantastic. And I got to travel all over the world uh, through cruise lecturing on ships and through Stanford having a travel study program, uh, which you lecture to Stanford faculty, but leads to things like around the world flights, uh, going to places like uh, Korea and Taiwan that I normally would never have gotten to, um, but all over the world. Um, so that, as far as I'm concerned, uh, being a public scientist had huge benefits as well as, of course, some disbenefits. But on a ship, I hate to tell you, um, when you're uh, not occupied lecturing, you can do whatever you damn well please, and that means often reading and writing. Uh, you have your own cabin. You don't have to repack every night if, like you do when you're traveling uh, or doing field work uh, moving, as we have done. Uh, it's just wonderful. It's an op opportunity to be very productive in wonderful circumstances, and you can do your hour walk on the deck early in the morning to get your exercise, watch flying fishes if you want to relax. Uh, and during the day, your big decisions are uh, – where to eat lunch, whether to go to movies after dinner, when to make love. I mean, it's a tough life. Sounds brutal. Um, it is terrible, but thank God I had guts. Uh, so a, a question about being a, a public scientist um, now versus when you began that journey. Um, 
do you think it would be harder now than it was then because of you know things like social media the you know the openness to uh, a greater degree of criticism from various circles um, you know how has that changed over the years I I don't know it's very hard to say the the criticism I, I again I was very lucky um, there was of course associated with the population bomb an enormous amount of criticism uh, including a lot of threats but uh, first of all I believe and I think most scientists believe that you live by your reputation with other scientists uh, Anne and I have always been very careful if we have a new idea or something to try and get it into the peer-reviewed literature the population bomb uh, for example was read by a whole bunch uh, of top scientists including Peter Raven Don Kennedy who later became the editor of science the head of the Food and Drug Administration Stanford's president read it so uh, when I wasn't as long as I knew I wasn't out on a limb I don't mind being heterodox within science but I always want to be in a position where scientists recognize me as heterodox maybe wrong but possibly right uh, and so I've been fortunate that way uh, and I was also fortunate uh, in being able uh, to be one of the first uh, thanks largely to Johnny Carson um, to be able to address very large audiences uh, on central mass media uh, the Tonight Show had audiences of tens of millions I did it more than 20 times I think all told and I did a whole series of similar shows and uh, I really uh, John and I used to have a really good time I, re I found it very enjoyable to do those things uh, and uh, today that I don't think I've seen a scientist get the kind of time I got on the Tonight Show recently on any of the you know uh, central media but there are all the blogs and so on the trouble is to penetrate uh, in that area is very difficult a good example currently is everybody's focused on the uh, coronavirus the coronavirus of course is something all of us had predicted for years uh, in detail uh, but no attention is being paid to the much more serious problems like uh, a little bit is being paid to climate change because we're seeing the results of climate disruption now. But the things like uh, the, uh, uh, the toxification of the planet, the fact that human sperm counts are dropping precipitously. Uh, in one study I saw there's a prediction that by 2050 the sperm count, the average sperm count in the West will be zero. Uh, the, uh, there's this stuff is being ignored even though we have these huge ex uh, existential threats, not the least of which is nuclear war and large-scale nuclear war. So uh, at a time when we need scientists speaking out even more, it's tougher to find the platforms on which to speak. I have not seen a single thing, and Anne watches the news all the time, I don't think she has either, uh, a discussion of what the refusing at is F-U-Z-I-N-G of our nuclear triad has meant to the stability of the standoff uh, with the Russians, uh, the nuclear standoff and the chances of an accident or 
non-accident large-scale nuclear war, which would end civilization, which we, of course, went into detail in the 80s with the nuclear winter studies. Uh, but that's not even mentioned these days uh, because of the uh, focus on the, uh, on the bungling of the, of the pandemic. And as I said, actually, to a group in the National Academy not long ago, I think every scientist nowadays' main duty, if they're not working on trying to solve the many open issues on the, uh, on the coronavirus, on SARS-2, uh, should be working to get rid of the thugs uh, in the government, particularly Trump and, his, uh, and the people who are enabling him uh, in the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, anybody who thinks that science in the form that most of us would like to see it uh, is likely to persist in any form if Trump is uh, reelected or refuses to leave office, I think is just whistling in the dark. And so uh, I think it's a duty of scientists to get out in the public uh, and not just talk about how to deal with the epidemic, which, of course, as I said, is being totally bungled, but also make the parallels to what happened in Germany in the early 1930s and so on. Scholars have a responsibility to inform people, and boy, we sure have failed in the educational system uh, to get people aware of the existential threats to our society, and that goes for Stanford University, too. Uh, Stanford, Harvard, and Yale are all pathetic uh, in this area, uh, and, uh, you know, you can get all the way through Stanford as an undergraduate or even a, a uh, graduate student uh, if you don't take the right courses and not know uh, what the second, what the third law of thermodynamics is, excuse me, what the second law of thermodynamics is, uh, what an ecosystem service is, what the size of the human population is, and what difference that makes, and so on. Did I ra have I raved at you enough now? No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to do more. Um, do you think the problem there is, you know, uh, shortcomings of present practitioners of science who aren't getting out there enough and doing enough and saying enough? Or do you view it as, you know, a, a structural issue in which, you know, we no longer have the media outlets that are mainstream in which, you know, people can come out and raise alarms about, uh, you know, broad issues like that? Where, where are our big shortcomings coming from? Well, I think part of it is structural, no question about that. And part of that, uh, uh, you know, all, all sorts of structural issues which are complicated and, and I can't even give you a full answer to. One night, Bob, uh, Bob, Robert MacArthur and I had a long, drunken discussion, at least I was drunk, I don't remember whether he was or not, over whether the NSF had been worth it. Uh, in other words, uh, steering science and steering it into big science um, has led to some things like much too much emphasis on the medical sciences cure areas, much too little on the environmental and prevention areas and so on. But would we have been better off if there was no NSF? And then how would the research have been done? Uh, it's interesting that when I first came to Stanford in 1959, there were still big issues of how science could interact with for support with business and with the military. And that has somewhat faded away, maybe faded away too much. Um, so a little earlier, we were talking about um, professional societies. You, you began as speaking about them at the earlier parts of your career. 
Um, I'm wondering about what sorts of roles they've they've played. And it occurred to me that one of the points you were just making um, about the relative spending on medical science versus e- ecosystem science is um, a point that you one point made in 1990 uh, in a publication in Bioscience. What one of the things that w- bothered me at the time, and in a way still does, was the success of the AMA, the American Medical Association, in getting huge amounts of support uh, for uh, medicine basically, which I wasn't against getting huge amounts of support for medicine, but then as today, I considered the health implications of what's going on environmentally uh, to be uh, even more serious than the needs in medicine at the time. Uh, you know, if the uh, climate in, uh, gets three or four degrees warmer, the public health consequences are going to dwarf uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, in a sense, the main medical advances we have made are primarily uh, uh, getting clean water to a lot of people uh, and keeping mosquitoes away from a lot of people and so on. We put huge effort into taking care of old farts like me with very expensive procedures and so on. It's not clear that that's the best uh, way to go. On the other hand, we could probably afford it if we didn't waste gigantic amounts of money uh, on uh, military experiments. The, uh, the, 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 the balance of idiocy that we now face with the Russians, for example. Uh, so, uh, this, the situation today, I think, is much tougher for young scientists uh, than it was in my day. First of all, uh, you there weren't so many scientists. There wasn't the, uh, the need to spend a lot of your time writing gigantic grant proposals. Uh, you had, if you did, were lucky enough to get access to the media, uh, it was a, it was a, big deal and not competed against. In other words, there were very few major outlets and so on. But today, of course, you also have other ways of spreading the word uh, and the social media. I mean, I, I tweet, even though I don't know how many people ever see the tweet. I do it in support of the mob, the mahb.stanford.edu, uh, which is an organization uh, designed to get the uh, uh, civil society focused on the big existential problems. Uh, and uh, it's very effective in one way, that is a lot of people got involved, but it doesn't seem to have any impact. And one of the things that, that I find very distressing and disappointing is how hard it is uh, to have any impact uh, on the uh, on the system the way it's designed now. Uh, and to be really pessimistic, I don't think we're going to solve the problem without a huge change in human culture. Uh, the whole issue of how people should be educated, what the responsibilities of people are. We are a small group animal, as I've said many times, that's struggling to try very rapidly to learn to live in large groups. Uh, and uh, we've utterly changed our environment. We've brought Stone Age genes uh, into a McDonald's world, 
and it's not working out well. So you still you still maintain a lot of the same concerns and pessimism that you've had for uh, most of your career. I'm much more pessimistic than I was earlier because until Ronald Reagan, I thought we'd been making progress too slowly, but progress in the right direction. Reagan started to turn it around, and then you end up with things like Trump. Uh, and uh, maybe it's impossible to reasonably uh, get govern and or have uh, cooperate 300 and plus million people. It must be just, you know, in, 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 if we were still hunter guy after all, we spent most of our history as hunter gatherers uh, and in groups of, depends on who you read, but say, let's say averaging around a hundred uh, later on with connections to other groups, but early on with very few connections. Uh, and those were groups of people who spoke the same language, who were genetically closely related, who looked alike, at um, a common culture, and so on, and where leadership went, in most cases, to the person who was best at doing what needed to be done. Uh, the hunt leader was one person. Uh, the person who dealt with sickness was a woman who uh, had spent a lot of time with herbs uh, and had a memory of, say, where the best water holes were, and so on. And now uh, we have a totally different system, and much of it traces to the idea of personal property uh, and that uh, people could be personal property. And we still uh, teach uh, mostly bullshit in our histories of uh, what's happened in the world. It's mostly uh, not about what's really happened. It's about kings and who fought whom and who won whom. Uh, there's a wonderful book on racism by... Um, uh, a uh, psychologist at Stanford named Jennifer Eberhardt uh, called Biased, which I think any scientist who wants to work in today's world and have some impact on our culture needs to read because I found, even though I have worked for my entire career on issues of equity uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I organize uh, with Bob, uh, with uh, Ralph Barr, a sit-ins to desegregate the restaurants of Lawrence, Kansas, when I was a postdoc there. Um, the uh, I even found myself rethinking my own biases uh, in that book. There's also a a PBS series which Ann and I watched just recently of about I think a six six one-hour shows called Liberty, the American Revolution, which actually uh, told much of the real story of the American Revolution, what they were after, who they were, and so on. Uh, I've always recommended to my students that they should read the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, at least sample them, because the problems the 13 colonies, which were really separate states, faced after the war was how to get organized so they could retain uh, their distinct characteristics and still work together to solve their overall problems, like how to keep the British away and so on. And it's exactly, in a sense, the same problem that 195 separate states are trying to solve globally, where they want to remain distinct in many ways, but they can't solve problems like 
uh, climate disruption, the loss of biodiversity, global toxification, one at a time. It's got to be solved by everybody, and we haven't found a way to do it. So it's a case in which you know we, we see the same problem repeated 200 years later, but on a slightly different scale. On a, on a larger scale, and we're still working with the same species. I, uh, unhappily, we followed the cultural course that the chimpanzees took, whereas I, if I had been back there uh, several million years ago, I would have voted to follow the bonobos. In other words, uh, we solve our problems by threatening people with nuclear weapons or, or blowing them up with conventional weapons. Uh, the bonobos solve their problems with genital rubbing, and I'm that's my way of going. Um, so, do you think these, you know, do you think that these large-scale problems are solvable through cultural evolution, or do you, or do you think that our our behaviors are ingrained and you know we're we're somewhat destined to uh, face these issues? I think we know perfectly well that we can solve these problems, at least in theory, through cultural. First of all, we obviously don't have time. Uh, to uh, to solve them by gene genetic evolution. Uh, people have often said things to me like, well, look, if fruit flies can become resistant to DDT, why should we worry? We can just become resistant to DDT. And I always say, yeah, in 10 generations, that's about 200 years. If you just kill 98% of human beings by poisoning them with DDT, you'll probably have a population that's quite resistant at the end of that. Uh, people don't understand that uh, generation time is the key thing in biological evolution. But look, um, most everybody uh, in, uh, in the United States uh, manages to override one of our main ingrained uh, genetic uh, urges, uh, and one of the central ones, that is to maximize your reproduction, and culturally doesn't do it. Uh, you know, you can have 10 kids, but very few women I've talked to are planning to have 10 kids or men. In fact, most of them are planning to have one or two, which is one is right or zero better, but uh, zero or one better. But nonetheless, we see around the world that cultural evolution can overwhelm uh, the most ingrained of our habits. Uh, and uh, most of the stuff that says DNA is driving our bad behavior is just people who are fascinated by DNA but don't know the numbers. Uh, there's just all kinds of crap out there, uh, including uh, that our jaws have been shrinking rapidly, particularly over the last 300 years, uh, because of genetics. You know, is that it happens wherever people uh, industrialize or actually starting with agriculture uh, and. Uh, who in the world would think that in 300 years there would be heavy selection for small jaws? Well, or it, can it be drift? If it's drift, how come it goes drifts in the same direction in any culture that becomes industrialized? In other words, the lack of knowledge of how evolution works and so on should tell everybody that if we're going to change our ways, we got to change them with cultural evolution. And the issue of how to do, that's why we formed uh, the mob originally. The original title of the mob was the Millennium Assessment of Human Behavior. And Ann and I set it up with Don Kennedy, who was, I think, then president of Stanford, uh, in uh, the idea being 
that we had in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment um, discovered that the ecosystems of the planet were in deep trouble, which of course most of us already knew. And what we didn't know was why any, we weren't doing anything about it. And that's why we had the idea of having a Millennium Assessment of Human Behavior rather than more looking at how rapidly things are going downhill, trying to figure out how to stop them from going downhill. And we've, of course, failed there. Uh, we're at, the, at the moment, for example, uh, the Trump administration is doing everything it can to make the existential threats closer and worse. Uh, and, uh, and they're succeeding. So do you see a greater role, if we were to get ourselves out of some of these you know, dire conditions, um, a role for organizations like scientific societies, uh, groups of scientists, those in the in the know, um, to collaborate and and work together to improve education. It sounds like would be one of the linchpins of of a successful project. Absolutely, I you know human beings are social animals, uh, and there's a lot of evidence in the psychological literature that uh, groups can solve problems easier usually than individuals. Doesn't mean that. Some extraordinary individuals don't get great ideas, but if they're not picked up by groups, they don't get implemented generally. So I think it's very important. I mean, uh, I have, as you know, had, as for example, why I went into the AIBS uh, was to try and make the groups more effective at what they do. I think one of the problems is um, there's still a hangover from the shoemaker stick to your last thing that if you're a scientist you only can talk science only in your most narrow um, field uh, and not have any opinion on what society ought to do about your scientific results i think we're slowly but surely getting rid of that uh, but there's still uh, enormous pressure for ex uh, pressure in the wrong direction for example uh, I tried to convince the Ecological Society that they should pay more attention to the social sciences, and I actually got a group of distinguished social scientists to give them that message at one of the meetings. Had no impact. Um, the 100th anniversary of the Ecological Society was coming up, and a group of people, not including me, tried to get them uh, to focus it on population because demography is the most neglected thing because of various pressures uh, in the overall picture of why we're going down the drain. And uh, they basically refused. They asked me to try and intervene, and I tried to intervene by saying, why not hold the meeting in Washington, D.C., where the me media might pay some attention uh, and focus on all the things that ecologists think are being neglected relatively um, in our social discourse. And they wouldn't do that either. They held the meeting, the 100th anniversary meeting in Baltimore, that media hub. Uh, and it was on the great achievements of the Ecological Society. But uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't huge advantages to having the sciences. I loved going when I have the chance uh, to scientific meetings because I want to see my buddies and drink with them rather than just, uh, uh, you know, do it over email. Uh, but of course, we can stay in closer touch now. The meetings face-to-face uh, -face seem to be less important, although I still think the face-to-face -face is very important for scientists. And I've been lucky because 
uh, I've been able to travel around a lot and see colleagues and colleagues come here, at least until uh, the, uh, the pandemic. And how has that experience, the pandemic experience uh, been for you? Um, it, it sounds oppressive right now. You've, you're dealing with uh, wildfire smoke and I, presumably. Yeah, it's, it's been hideous. Uh, the, uh, Anne and my uh, social life, our pleasure, has been for many years, for decades, uh, having dinner with colleagues and friends in restaurants uh, and drinking uh, wines that we're interested in. And now I think it's something like 26 weeks we haven't been in a restaurant. Uh, we've seen our friends, with a couple of exceptions, only in two dimensions uh, on the screen. Uh, when our granddaughter um, drove up from LA, she's a, a computer, a, a statistical consultant, um, we couldn't get her into our building. We had to see her only outside and we couldn't take her to a restaurant. We had a dinner with some close friends with masks on social distancing at the end of a driveway in smoke. Uh, so, but the most disheartening thing is we're in good shape. I mean, we're in a, uh, an air conditioned building where we have, uh, just got, uh, air purifiers, which are helping with the smoke. Uh, but being retired, uh, we still have an income. Many people around here don't have an income. People that we knew well, for example, uh, in favorite restaurants, they're closed and the people that work there are out of work. People are hungry in the United States. The, the uh, people dying sick and unemployed because of the total unbelievable incompetence of the Trump administration is a constant uh, pain for me and many of my colleagues. It was a, you know, there was in the government from the last administration, an organization designed to deal with possible pandemics and Trump closed it before the pandemic came along. Um, so uh, I, I feel like uh, I'm in Germany in 1931 or two, uh, seeing the uh, parallel things which are doing, which are destroying uh, not only our democracy, but uh, I think in the, even the medium term, probably destroying human civilization because uh, I don't see any path at the moment, even if Trump is removed, that is likely to take us away from the growth path, which is taking us to a collapse of civilization. But I don't see any choice but to keep trying. And and for those, you know, um, I'm thinking particularly of, of young scientists. Um, what advice would you have for them in terms of navigating these difficult times? Well, my, my first advice always to people wanting to go into science is don't do it if you don't love it. In other words, uh, <laughs> people... Oh, have often accused me of being a workaholic, uh, which uh, is, is super silly because I, my hobby originally, my hobbies were being out in nature, collecting butterflies, uh, watching birds, that sort of thing. And that's what I do professionally. And I love doing it. So why in hell, you know, why in hell shouldn't I do it? So first of all, love what you do. Second of all, um, don't wait until you're fully established before you get involved in the political issues. Get involved early on. Uh, it's 
advice I gave many years ago uh, to John Holdren, uh, who at the time I met him was a graduate student uh, in uh, working on plasma physics, um, world's expert in the environmental, the potential environmental impacts of fusion uh, generation of power and many other things. But he started early and went on to become uh, the top advisor to two, a science advisor for Obama, uh, de facto science advisor for Clinton, um, worked with the Russians on all sorts of environmental problems, uh, was central to the American response to the Fukushima thing, uh, uh, worked very hard on scientific relations between uh, uh, the United States uh, and, and China and did brilliant work uh, on uh, the confinement of plasmas uh, and also in environmental issues in general. Uh, and so he's the living proof, even in those days when there was a lot of the stick to your last crap, uh, that a young scientist uh, can have a real impact even before uh, he or she gets uh, fully established. And I give other examples too. So I think uh, do great science, you will if you love it, and then always focus on how it impacts the really big picture. Science is an absolutely critical part of our civilization now. We have built ourselves uh, into that, and therefore uh, scientists should pay uh, great attention to other things besides what is strictly science. Uh, Science tells us that racism is nonsense, but just knowing that it's nonsense uh, is nowhere near all that needs to be done. Same thing on nuclear weapons, for example. Well, I think that's a, a very strong message and a good note on which to leave the conversation. Uh, Dr. Ehrlich, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.